Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 20. We've been in a series in the book of Acts. We are actually coming uh, to the end of this book. And uh, as seasons change uh, here on the Central Coast, as well as within our church, we oftentimes uh, begin to look at other things and teachings. And uh, I've asked you guys over the past few weeks to be praying that God would be leading and directing us to what we should be going through next and uh, maybe uh, what your appetite as well with a couple other things. So if you guys don't have Bibles, uh, raise your hand. We have some people who'd love to get you guys Bibles. Um, so a couple things as soon as we come to the end of the book of Acts. There's a couple things that are kind of stirring in my heart uh, that we will be sharing. Typically what we do in the fall is we'll do like a yearly uh, recap on kind of like our, the vision and values. In other words, who we are as a church. Uh, how God has, uh, how we see the leadership of Calvary Slow is, is guiding and directing our church. So we'll uh, spend at least two weeks kind of looking at that. Um, and again, uh, if this is a, a new church to you, if you've been around for any length of time, uh, I would say that this is really important uh, to not miss these types of gatherings and teachings uh, as they give you a pretty good understanding as to who we see we are on the Central Coast and the type of unique vision and purpose in which God has called us to. Um, and the other thing that's kind of been stirring my heart and my mind, um, based upon some really good feedback from some of you guys, but also based upon um, conversations I've had with a lot of people, is I think I might be doing a, a brief, small, short series on a variety of subjects, and then we will be getting back into a typical book study, expositional type of a book study like we typically do. Um, but I think we'll probably spend a little bit of a few weeks focusing on the subjects of like sex, singleness, marriage, um, dating. Um, for some of you, that might be like a yawn. But honestly, um, in the times of conversations I've had with people and the types of things that people are wrestling with and questioning and wondering, even if you're married, these are really pertinent subjects. Even if you're not married, obviously uh, your ears perk when you hear the word singleness. But these are some of the things that are kind of stirring my heart. So uh, two things I would ask. One, just keep praying. Pray that God would just continue to give some uh, understanding and unpacking of what he has in store. And uh, two, be praying about how to jump in and get involved and be a part of this church family. So there we go. Acts chapter 20 is where we're at this morning. What I want to do this morning is uh, I'm going to start by praying in two seconds. And then um, I'm going to read Acts chapter 20, the passages that we'll be looking at. It's kind of a lengthy portion of scripture, but I'll kind of look at more of a condensed version of it to, uh, and then as we teach through it, we'll basically take a look at all the passages in this uh, kind of lengthy section. So what we will be looking at for the most part is from verse 18 on to verse 27, all those passages in between. Um, But I want to read just beginning by looking at a couple different passages and then uh, then we'll jump in. But let me pray first, we'll read, and then we'll jump into this morning's message. So let's pray. God, right now we, uh, we pause to consider who you are and we reflect, God, upon your grace, your kindness, God, your covenantal love, God, by which you've committed yourself to us. God, this type of love is so oftentimes foreign to us in this world and yet it is uh, prevalent in Christ. So, God, I ask you this morning that you would just open our hearts and our minds and our understanding to who you are. God, give us the ability to hear what you have to speak to us. Give us the ability to see the things that uh, you choose this morning to reveal to us. And God, I I pray that you would help me to be able to clearly communicate and speak forth uh, what your word is uh, teaching and declaring. So, uh, and at the same time, again, for all of us, Lord, help us 
to take what you are speaking and begin to ask those questions as to how this should reshape us, how we can be challenged, what we are to do by way of response to the revelation of your word. So we commit this time in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said Amen. All right, so Acts chapter 20, I'll pick it up at verse 17, I'll read 17, or a portion of 17 and 18, actually 18, sorry, and then we'll take a look at verse 22 on down to 24. So let me read. So it says, Paul said to the leaders of the church, these, or would be the elders of the church, um, he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you uh, the whole time from the very first day to when I set foot in Asia. Uh, Verse 22, jumping down, skipping a handful of verses in which we'll come back to. He says, and now I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city uh, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I don't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify uh, to the gospel of the grace of God. And this is God's word. And this is what I want to unpack and think about today. And so today's message, as I was thinking through this and considering this, uh, is entitled uh, A Gospel-Shaped Legacy. Because as I think about what Paul is doing here, Paul has spent a significant part of his life and ministry investing himself into this uh, community of people in this ancient city in modern-day Turkey called Ephesus. Really large city, and uh, the church that was planted there, that's what Paul did. If you don't know who Paul is, Paul was an early church leader. He went around. uh, He would be equivalent to like a church entrepreneur. He uh, didn't go start franchises of uh, fast food restaurants. He started churches. He planted churches. He went into every community. And Paul's vision, Paul's idea was to create a multi-ethnic groups of people that were focused on the power and the love and the kindness and the forgiveness of Jesus. Those communities centered around this person of Jesus, this God person of Jesus, were called churches. So that's what Paul did. He went all the way around the Roman Empire in particular regions of Asia Minor and Greece Corinth, all these other particular areas doing this. And there are occasions in which Paul would be kicked out of some of these regions fairly quickly. And then there are other places like Ephesus that Paul would have spent a fairly significant amount of time. And so in those particular regions, Paul basically invested his life, spent time with them. As we're going to see uh, to some detail, the types of relationships that Paul developed with these people. Um, The church that was in the city called Ephesus... Even uh, we, we know more about this church, I would say, than any other church. I mean, you can read some other churches and the types of uh, growth that they had, but the Church of Ephesus, we, we actually know a lot about. We have a letter that was written to them. It's called the Letter of Ephesians. Um, in the book of Revelation, there's actually uh, a letter that Jesus himself addresses specifically to them. For the most part, they're a really good church. They're very active. They're doing a lot of stuff, except he says, unfortunately, one thing I have against you, you guys have left Your first love, even though there's a lot of activities, a lot of uh, things going on, for the most part, that sense of true love and devotion to Jesus has somehow been put on the back burner. And so this was Paul's uh, basically closing communication with the leaders of these church. Now, next week, we'll actually spend a little bit of time looking at who these elders are or these leaders are. We'll uh, hopefully answer 
maybe for some of you guys, questions like, how did Paul go about appointing elders, and how do we kind of do that, and what does leadership look like in the church, and uh, what's expected of leaders, and so on and so forth. We'll, We'll actually get to that next week, because it kind of plays right into the very narrative itself. But for this week, what I really want to focus on is the type of relationship that Paul actually has with these people. What we see is that Paul's uh, describing this incredible legacy that he left behind. Now, um, in, the, uh, in the Huffington Post a few years ago, I was kind of doing some online research and thinking about this, and the idea of the subject matter of leaving a legacy is, is pretty broad and vast. There's a lot of books and articles and online periodicals that kind of talk about this, but I found this one actually kind of interesting because this was in the Huffington Post, a pretty uh, broad, secular type of uh, publication, and uh, the, the gal that had written this was kind of fairly known, well-known, and she was talking about five different ways to leave a great legacy. And, and again, this is type of stuff, the idea of leaving a legacy, which is pretty broad and pretty well-known within culture at large. And so she wrote five things down. Again, this is not necessarily content for this morning. I'll just go through it real fast. She says this is how, five ways in which you can leave a good legacy or a great legacy, I should say. Support the people and the causes that are important to you. Number two, she writes, reflect and decide on what is most important in your life. Number three, she says, share your blessings with others. Number four, be a mentor to others. Number five, pursue your passions. And, you know, a great advice, I would say. You know, good advice if you're thinking about how to leave a good legacy. Uh, And again, for some of you, you're young. Uh, and as the next few weeks go on, as Cal Poly begins to kind of fill back into the empty spaces here on the Central Coast, we'll be seeing a lot more younger faces come in. And uh, with that, there's oftentimes a tendency, especially for younger people, to not even have the idea or the subject of legacy even on our radar screen. The older we get, the more we are thinking about these types of things, not just by way of a will, and it's not just simply money or currency or financial legacy that we leave behind or uh, property, but it's the type of person we leave behind, the type of uh, morals and values and ideas and concepts of what's worth and what's worthy within our lives. These become even greater subject matter to ponder and think about. Um, again, like I said, within the secular world at large, this is an important subject that gets turned around often, but it's also something which the scripture actually addresses as well. And this is what we see, this is what I want to point out this morning, uh, a variety of ways by which Paul the Apostle left this incredible legacy for this community people of Jesus people living in the city of Ephesus. So that's what I really want to focus on this morning, is trying to understand, trying to look at some of the variety of ways by which Paul actually left this really good Legacy, And I'll close with some uh, final thoughts with regard to the subject matter at large. So what I want to do is I want to just basically look at, I don't know, five or six variety of ways in which Paul left this great legacy. So let's jump into the text. We'll just take a look at it, verse by verse, line by line, as we kind of make our way through this. So the first thing I notice is that Paul left this legacy of humility. He left this legacy of humility. We'll come back to this passage in just a second that's up there. But take a look at, first of all, where Paul says this in about verse 19. He says, you guys know, he's referring to these leaders, that I serve the Lord with humility. So in other words, Paul's like making reference to the fact of something that was familiar to them. He's like, you guys know, the type of person that I was among you was, I was humble. I served you with humility. And uh, this is an important question to be kind of asked. What does it look like? What is humility look like? Paul, to some degree, answers this in other passages, and that's what this passage is I'm going to look at right now. Philippians chapter 2, he says this, do nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And all of this, if you keep reading within the context at large in this, Paul's saying that because this is exactly what Jesus did. And what Paul is basically identifying is saying is that, look, the very God, Yahweh himself, the one that has stepped into time, the one that has stepped into challenges and hardships, and the one that created all in his own likeness and humanity that bears his image, that even though humanity has done the most horrific things, not only towards God, but also towards each other, this God steps into this world not as a fiery, angry, vengeful warrior out to crush and destroy. Instead, this God comes as a humble servant. He's not prideful. He doesn't have an entourage. He doesn't walk with a swagger. He deserves to. That's who he is. There's passages that say that God of glory thunders. You see these images throughout the Old Testament. For example, when the children of Israel were freed from the uh, enslavement of Egypt, they come through the Red Sea, and there's basically uh, two parallel stories going on. On one hand, there's actual narrative that describes in just uh, a clinical events what happened. And then I think it's like chapter 14 or 13 or somewhere around there is a story. It's a song that basically describes this, this in very pictorial ways what God had done, how God intervened. And it uses the language of a warrior that God steps in like this powerful warrior doing incredible stuff with an entourage. He has, if you ever heard of the phrase, God has the host of angels, the host of heaven. That's basically describing this entourage of power. God is a power mover and shaker in the universe and the cosmos. Yet how does he enter into this world? With incredible humility. This is, this is amazing when we think about this. Because for the most part, in the context of today's world, in society, and celebrity status today, we tend to think of greatness somehow also uh, coexisting or being combined with this level of swagger or bravado. And that the idea of seeing somebody that is exceptionally well-known and celebrity status and yet being very humble, is, that's like mind-blowing to us. We're like, what? That person said hi to me. That's shocking because we don't expect celebrity status type people of greatness and power being kind. We expect them to be arrogant. We expect them to be like Conor McGregor's. We expect them to be people that have this sense of bravado. We expect that. But when there's a sense of humility and gentleness and kindness, that's shocking to us. And that's what Paul is saying is that when I was among you, you knew who I was. You knew how I acted. I was humble among you. The second thing that we see that Paul points out is going to say that I was also with you in, in tears. As I think about this, I think that this is not just Paul saying, look, I cried a lot among you. I was ultra emotional among you. I don't think that's necessarily the case what Paul is saying. I think what Paul is basically describing is that while I was among you, there's no pretension. It wasn't me trying to uh, project this uh, position or status of power and strength and might. Paul's saying, look, when I, when I was among you, I, I was who I, who I was. I was transparent. I was vulnerable among you. I mean, we would say in today's language, he was authentic, right? Paul was totally authentic. But the reality is, Paul is saying that this is who I was among you. Like, when I wasn't doing good, I let you know I wasn't doing good. When I was doing okay, I let you know I was doing okay. At the end of the day, I, I was with you in tears. 
moments where things are challenging and hard. In Acts chapter 20, later on in the chapter, in verse 31, we won't ultimately get to this today, but next week, uh, verse 31, he says this, for uh, three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish you with tears. This is Paul's way of saying, look, when I was with you guys, yes, it was hard, and yes, there were moments I had to speak to you guys, and in the midst of speaking to you, it was painful to me and full of tears. Now, it suggests moms and dads totally get this. They get the idea of tears. I mean, parenting is not easy. Relationships are not easy. And the older uh, relationships get, the more mature they, they, they uh, uh, form upon themselves, and the broader they get, the more types of relationships that can enter into those things, it oftentimes creates strain and pain and hardship. And that hardship oftentimes can create incredible pressure upon the soul, which is really the idea of, of, of tears. It leads to deep, painful circumstances that oftentimes need to happen. What Paul is saying is that when I was with you, the way I acted among you, I was totally transparent, totally vulnerable among you, in tears. So we see that this is a type of legacy that Paul left. The third thing that I see is that we also recognize that even though there was a sense of humility that Paul left in his legacy, tears and transparency, we also see uh, the third thing, that there was a sense of fidelity or faithfulness within trials. Now the word that's used here for trials uh, is the exact same word that Luke also uses in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 17, uh, where it describes Jesus in the wilderness. If you remember that, when Jesus was being tempted or tested by Satan, it's the exact same Greek word that's used there. It's this word that implies the sense of testing and hardship and struggle and challenge. But here's what I think Paul is describing. By way of legacy, in other words, by way of what you know about me, who I was, how I acted in the midst of my trials and hardships and and pressing moments, what you saw about me was a type of quality of person that didn't just simply come undone or that didn't simply fall to the wayside or didn't just simply tap out when life got hard. You saw me press on, move forward, hold on to Christ. You saw me come out the other end, a different person. I've said this before, that trials, hardships, crushing, challenges, however you want to describe it, pain, tears, suffering. Um, I've heard it described before. I'm sure you have as well. It's a nice kind of cliche that you might have found on grandma's uh, coffee mug. But trials and hardships can either make you better people or bitter people. Better people or bitter people. I think what Paul is describing here is that the type of trials and challenges and hardships that he faced... And that you and I, we will always face, they will either make us better people, whereby we are more like Christ, there's a sense of softness and gentleness and tenderness and compassion towards others, or we can come out the other end uh, hardened, more calloused, more cynical, more angry, more frustrated. And really, at the end of the day, this is, this is how life's challenges will oftentimes determine or at least shape our fate. Now, you don't have power or control over those circumstances that come into your life. I mean, to some degree we do based upon decisions that we make if we choose to make a pathway that is in opposition to God and brokenness and hurt and trials and hardships come as a result of that. That's simply because we've made choices that are not consistent with the heart and the mind of God. But for the most part, there's a lot of circumstances that oftentimes come into our lives that we're powerless against. And it's been oftentimes said before that we don't necessarily have the power to 
to change those things or to control those things. But what we do have the power over is to determine how will I respond to those things. Will I allow them to make me into a bitter person? Will I allow them to make me into someone who's more cynical, more angry, more upset, more frustrated with God, more frustrated with human beings? Or by the power of God, by the character of God at work in me, in those that are saying yes to God, to allow their heart to be transformed and changed. And this is what I think that Paul is basically describing. Look, you guys saw me in your midst, in the midst of hardships. So Jesus gave this parable. I'm sure some of you guys are familiar with it. He describes that there are, it's a parable of two different types of foundations. It's really what the story is about. He says that one, it's like in Matthew chapter 6. He describes that one house is built upon this foundation of rock, or stone. The other foundation is the house is built upon this foundation of sand. Uh, those of you that are architects or those of you that aren't architects, you know that obviously building on sand is not a good idea. Building upon rock, better idea. But the point of the matter is, is that Jesus says in this parable, there are those that build their house on rock, those that build their house on sand. And then in the follow-up verses, Jesus says that when the winds came and the floods rose against the house and beat against this house, the house that was built upon the rock withstood that. So in my mind, I envisioned two houses, like mobile or track homes, they say. Uh, exact same exterior, exact same paint color, exact same front yard, exact same landscaping, exact same layout. Everything is the same in both of these houses. The only thing that is not the same, actually, is what you cannot see. We call that the foundation. You realize that? No one can truly see the foundation of your life. You know what the foundation is to some degree, and God, without question, knows the foundation of your life. Where the foundation then becomes at some point in your life uh, available to be seen is when you are tried, when you are tested. That will begin to determine, it will begin to reveal to you, it will become this great revealer demonstrating, showing to you what type of a foundation you built your house upon, your life upon, what the idea, the metaphor for a house is. It's really about your life. And what I think Paul is describing here is that you saw me. You guys watched me. Uh, I left a legacy for you to observe, to watch, to follow uh, of a life that was really faithful in the midst of incredible trials and hardships. So moving along, what we see next is that Paul goes on to describe that with regard to a legacy. He leaves this legacy not only of humility, of tears, faithfulness and trial, but also what I would describe as truth-telling. That this is part of it. Paul doesn't just simply hang out with them and just say, you knew that I loved you. Paul points to the fact that my love for you was demonstrated through the types of words that I communicated to you. So let me, let me, let me read this to you and just make some statements after this. So in verse 20 through 21, and then we'll jump down to verse 25 to 26. You can follow along. Just listen to what Paul says. Paul says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying here is that you knew what I communicated to you. I communicated to you the essential truths of what Jesus taught us. That at the end of the day, there is a responsibility that God calls us to and God invites us to, to repent from things that are inconsistent with his kingdom. And yet ultimately to turn to the one who created us. To find a sense of newness that comes from him. And then Paul goes on to say down in verse 25. 
And he says, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Verse 26 is, therefore I testify to you that this day I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink back, declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is Paul's way of saying, look, you guys knew the type of person that I was among you. I didn't withhold truth from you. Now there's an idea, I think, for the most part in today's culture that we really, really, truly don't want to be offensive to people. So we oftentimes walk very carefully. We tiptoe around truths that oftentimes sound offensive, or I would even go further and say that actually sound incongruent with culture and society at large. So we tiptoe around certain truths, convictions that Scripture teaches. And part of that, I think, is because uh, there's a sense of maybe embarrassment or shame because in our minds we're thinking, ah, it sounds so backwards, The truth of God or the word of God sounds so inconsistent or incongruent or backwards with today's modern society and culture. And this is what I would suggest. That the reality is that culture is always changing. So the type of culture that you and I are surrounded by today, 50 years from now, if you can get into a time capsule and go ahead 50 years from now, you would find that culture would have already shifted and gone way beyond what it is currently today. And if you went backwards 50 years ago, you know already some of the ideas and ideologies and concepts that society at large embraced as well as denied and turned away from. So culture is always shifting and shaping and changing. But God's word, God's scripture is something that is like this anchor to our souls. And it will always be out of sync with culture and society at large. So there will always be this temptation to shy away from truth. To shy away from what scripture teaches. To shy away from what God has to say. And what I would suggest that when we do that, it's actually to our own brokenness. Because God's word is words, the words of life. God's word is that if you trust me, if you obey me, no matter how incongruent or inconsistent it seems to feel within the society and culture at large, if you trust me, I will prove myself. I will be a father unto you. I will protect you. So at the end of the day, what Paul is saying is that the type of relationship I had among you was one of which I didn't shy away from speaking the truth to you. Even though, and again, for some of us, we might be wondering, was that hard for Paul to preach truth in that ancient society? Of course it was. In fact, if you're familiar with the story, you remember a couple weeks ago that Paul, in preaching the truth, actually created a riot. I mean, literally, like, like a big riot. I mean, we're talking the entire city was going crazy, and people were just throwing things and angry and irate and frustrated. And yet, as a result of this, it was because that Paul said, look, I didn't hold back truthfulness, truth-telling to you. So, again, the legacy. What type of legacy are we wanting to leave? Uh, it is hard sometimes, and I think for the most part, as society and culture at large, none of us, for the most part, like being the person that speaks truth or is the one that is the conf- uh, that's confronting someone else. We prefer to stand in the background and not be the one that has to confront someone. I mean, I would say out of almost 25 years of doing ministry and having to communicate and talk with people about challenges in their life and difficulties and relational strains, one of the number one things I'm constantly being re-aware of in terms of people's lives is that nobody likes confrontation. People would rather walk away from a relationship, get a divorce, leave a church, abandon a small group, walk away from a relationship, um, break up by, by way of text, whatever, because we do not want any form or level of confrontation. 
really what we're afraid of is, is oftentimes having to speak truth. And I would suggest that's one of the most important things that we need as a culture and society. Now, again, this is where sometimes people go to this other extreme where like, I speak truth, and we're like hardcore and angry and frustrated about it, and we're the type of people that love to use truth not as a precision tool but as a club, and we thump people over the head with quote-unquote truth or at least our version of truth, and we end up causing great damage, and at the end of the day, people oftentimes walk around with a level of bravado like, I speak truth. No, actually, you're really rude. And you're not kind, you're not very gentle, you're nothing like Jesus, and you use truth like a club to beat people up and make yourself feel better and walk around with a sense of swagger because you think you are a truth teller. But what we see with Paul is even though Paul was a truth teller, there's a sense of humility about him. Truth with humility was how Paul left this legacy. So it can be done. So let's move on. Uh, In verse uh, 20, Kind of going back into the story, we see another thing that we see that Paul left by way of legacy is a sense of togetherness. That Paul, in this particular passage, he says, I taught you guys in public and from house to house. So what I mean about this is that Paul recognized that even though he was called to plant these churches and pastor, to some degree be like the shepherd that communicated God's word, that shared his life, Paul was together with people. Paul was not this guy that just kind of preached on Sundays or did whatever type of Bible teaching, whatever it was that he did, and then leave for the rest of the week and completely be disengaged with the rest of the people. Paul lived his life with these people daily, house to house, it says, as well as in these large public gatherings. And so on one level, we see that this is, this is interesting in terms of how the church conducted its daily life. So if you ever wonder, like, what did the early church do by way of larger patterns of life and existence? Well, for one, we know that they met in larger gatherings, probably like this, maybe in a large hall, um, and yet they also met house to house, meaning small groups. That's kind of how I would interpret that. They, they, they broke bread in each other's house. They went to someone's house. Someone opened up their house, which means on a very practical, pragmatic level, there's people within those congregations that said, I got a house. I'll open it up. Someone else is like, I got food. I'll bring it over. Someone else is like, I got a sitar. I'll bring it over. We'll play music. Someone else, else, whatever, you know. Everyone comes together and they're praying with each other and singing together and eating food together, doing life with each other. And then on public gatherings, they would all come together. And probably in this context, Paul who was the main teacher over this community, uh, at some point he appoints his elders. Paul comes in and he instructs. And he teaches, communicates, he's telling truth. He's maybe even crying while he's telling truth. I don't know. But the point of the matter is, is in small gatherings as well as larger gatherings, they were doing life together. But again, Paul was together with them. He wasn't isolated. So this is something for all of us to really think about. I think more so in today's culture and society and world than ever before, there's greater danger for all of us to become more isolated than ever while at the same time thinking we're more connected than ever before. And that's what social media does. It creates sort of this illusion that I'm more connected. I got 2,000 friends on Facebook. I'm well-known. Or I'm constantly getting likes on my Instagram feed. I'm well-known. And the fact of the matter is is that you may not be known by anybody, and you may not know anybody. Because we don't know how to be together. We don't know how to do life with each other. We don't really know how to cry with each other. We don't know how to be vulnerable with each other. We don't know how to let down our guard and speak truth with each other. We don't know how to be humble with each other. And that's one of the greatest, in my opinion, in all sorts of sociological studies, 
that have verified this. It's one of the most dangerous realities, I think, for the most part in today's culture of solely living within social media is it's created a society of lonely people. And what we see with, with Paul's legacy is that I was together with you guys everywhere, every day, vulnerable. Now, lastly, second to last, ah, lastly, I'll give you lastly. How about that? You're welcome. Uh, we also see that Paul emphasizes by way of legacy this single-minded devotion to God. So in other words, there's no question in people's mind as to what drove Paul's life. I don't think there's any obscurity, any question, any like ambiguity as to like what drives Paul. I think everybody would have been able to answer that question unanimously. Jesus does. Like this, and Paul actually reaffirms this. Listen to what he says. Last passage I'll read and we'll wrap this up. He says this in Acts chapter 22, uh, 20 verse 22. He says, I am now going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit, uh, which is another way, uh, another way to translate that is I'm bound by the Spirit. In other words, Paul feels this overwhelming sense that the Holy Spirit is guiding, leading, directing me. So what does that look like? Again, I can spend an entire message just on talking about this, and I've done this not too long ago in the past, but by way of brief reminder, it, it really is... It's as simple as and as challenging as entering into this point of just simply saying, here I am, Lord. That's how it begins. Some of you are wondering, like, how do I begin this Christian life? How do I begin this life of actually following God, of walking with God, or living for God, or living the Christian life? It literally begins with no other strings attached other than just simply saying, Lord, I want to follow you. Help me. Show me. Guide me. Direct me. And Paul's saying that, look, I was compelled by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, verse 23, except that uh, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And that's not a wonderful message, but obviously Paul was feeling this idea that wherever he was going to go, something ominous and bad and horrible was going to happen to him. Um, and it ends up that's kind of what, what happened to Paul's life. Now, um, what he says in verse 24, he says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish the course of my ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to, cre- to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is that, look, at the end of the day, I realize that my life, no matter how adventurous it has been, no matter how crazy uh, my life has been, no matter what types of sacrifices I made, Paul simply looks at his whole entire life and says, the sum total of my life is the most important thing for me is Jesus. That was a legacy that Paul left. We got to think about that. Like, what, what are the things that drive us? What are the things that are the most valuable in our lives? What are the things that we give the most attention, most time, most energy, most of our money over to? Well, Paul is saying that for me, Christ was what awakened my soul. Jesus was what drove me. Jesus is what prompted the decisions in my life, throughout my life, day to day in my life. Jesus was everything to me. Now, some might look at that and be like, well, Paul was a missionary. Paul was likely single. Paul had all these abilities to do this because that's how Paul's life was wired towards that end. And how do I 
you know, relate to something like that if you are living, obviously, today in today's society on the Central Coast. You might even have kids or you might have a very uh, big uh, school schedule and you're like, I don't know how to make that happen. And again, like I said, it simply begins by simply saying within your heart, no matter where you're at, God, I want to know your plan. I want to say yes to you. Whatever that is, Jesus, I want to follow you. That's where it begins. So I want to finish here with this thought because if we were to stop right here, the idea of leaving a legacy and having some really great scriptures to back this up and to think about this and consider this, um, we could stop right now and be like, end this message in a positive note by saying, now go and do just like Paul. Go leave a good legacy. End of message. You guys have a wonderful day. At the end of that, I mean, we can even look at Jesus and be like, well, Jesus left this great legacy. He was this amazing teacher. He was a prophet. He gave his life. He died the sacrificial death. And yet, at the end of the day, if we look at the life of Jesus and somehow surmise that as Jesus gave himself entirely to God, so therefore should I, all we're simply doing is we're looking at the story of the Bible as nothing more than really good advice to follow. At the end of the day, that concept is actually not good advice. It's horrible advice. Because if we look at Jesus, for example, where like he lived this incredibly legacy late in life and he was sacrificial and kind and good and gave himself for many, just like Paul following the footsteps of Jesus. And if we are to follow the life of Paul, we would look at that and be like, I can't do that. I can't act like Jesus. I can't be like Jesus. We would feel this either sense on the one hand of total despair, like I cannot do that. I am a failure of all failures. Or if you are self-deceived, you might even look at your life and be like, I kind of like Jesus. I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty self-sacrificial. I'm pretty humble. I'm pretty kind, pretty generous, pretty much a truth teller, all these things. And you are the type of person at some point that will become egotistical and arrogant and the type of person everybody wants to run away from because no one likes your type. But that being said, simply looking at the message of Jesus or this idea of legacy as nothing more than a template to follow is not good news. And it's really not even good advice. But what that leads us to is an understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So the question is, did Jesus leave a good legacy? Of course he did. Did Paul leave a good legacy? But for in the case of Jesus, Jesus did not just simply leave a good legacy. He left more than a legacy. He left his life. He gave himself for others. So the idea of Jesus is not just him coming to do something great by way of an example and a legacy to follow. He actually comes to give himself for people like you and I that are broken, that are messed up, that are ruined, that are in the various places of despair, uh, brokenness, of sin, and of rebellion. And he says, look, I have done something for you, not just for you to follow, but for you to rescue you. And the gospel is always this invitation to receive the gift of God's love put on display through Jesus, giving him his life for you in exchange for your brokenness in sin and rebellion. And this is why Paul could say, everywhere I went, I'm always inviting people to repent, to turn from their past, and to turn to this good news of grace, of gift that comes through Christ. So the invitation continues today. So I want to invite you, no matter who you are, if you're somebody that's been a Christian for a long time, 
And you oftentimes go up and down in your understanding of grace. And there's moments you are filled with despair because you feel like you are such a failure or you've sinned or you're defiled. The reality for you is to receive grace from God today. If you're somebody that has been a Christian for a long time and you're on the other end, meaning you find yourself a little bit egotistical and prideful, and you look at others that aren't doing as much for God, and you tend to look condescendingly upon them, the invitation for you is to be humbled by Christ, to receive his gift of grace by his humility and being crushed on the cross for you to be washed and cleansed. If you're somebody that would say, I'm not a Christian. I don't really even know what the Christian life is all about. I'm a little bit lost in, under, in my understanding as to what this whole thing is all about. But the invitation for you is to just simply come to the point of saying, God, I, I want to know. Just asking God, God, make yourself real to me. Reveal who you are to me. Show me your love in a way that's tangible. That's not just simply in my intellect, but in my heart. So that's the invitation for all of us. And we're going to respond now. That's what we do as a church. We trust God to give revelation through his word. And then we give pause to respond to God, to worship him. And we do this by way of song, communion, and prayer. So as the worship team comes on up, uh, I'm going to pray and uh, we'll sing. We will also give time to respond by way of partaking the communion, which is the receiving of the broken bread and the poured out cup of that speaks of Christ's blood for us, his blood shed for us, that washes and cleanses us. And then we'll have some time to pray, to minister to you. So if you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, Sunday mornings is a time to gather, to respond to God, and to allow our hearts to be opened up to God, and then to receive from God what God has to offer to us. So we'll have some leaders up here, some of our community group leaders that will be available to pray. So if you're a community group leader, please come on down when you get a sec and we begin to just be available to pray. I'll be up in the front. We'd just love to pray for you. If you're not a Christian, you need someone to pray with. We're up here. If you are a Christian, you just need something to be prayed for. We're here for you. If you're somebody that just needs a touch of God in your life, we want to pray for you. So why don't we all stand and I'm going to pray and then we will begin to sing. Partake of communion and respond. So God, thank you for your love. And God, in this time right now, we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come in this place in tangible ways, revealing to us, God, the depth of your love. And that our hearts, Lord, would be open and quick and willing and eager to say, Lord, here we are. Take my life. Show me, God, ways in which I can receive and trust your ways and your grace. Wash me, cleanse me. So let's respond.